Hello, Bookstew viewers. Today I have a guest who's going to have some really good suggestions for women over 50. However, not to limit the audience, I think her suggestions are equally valid for men over 50, but Diana Coleman chose to focus specifically on women for the purpose of her book, which is called Women Going For It. What a coincidence. Taking Risks After 50. So I'd like to welcome from Rockland, Maine, Diana Coleman. Diana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Diana, um, let's start with how you got to where you got to, because obviously you yourself are a risk taker, but your business card says you are a speaker, an author, and a change catalyst. Of course, the last was really intriguing to me. So uh, why don't you share with the audience how you became a change catalyst? Well, I say that as a term informally because the book started actually when I was 50. And I thought, how did I get to be 50 so <laughs> soon? So I distributed a very informal survey to alumni from my college and um, got a lot of responses. And women were saying they wanted to try something new and different, they weren't sure what. Health was an issue, maybe they became caregivers. And um, so I was very intrigued by the answers. And I thought, well, I don't have time now, I'm working full time and had a lot going on. So I thought, I'm gonna come back to this and think about all the kinds of risks you can take. So I made a long list and that's how it started when I researched some women that I was interested in finding, and I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. But the change catalyst term was really because sometimes, like, I love to travel, and I've traveled a lot by myself, and I would hear women say, oh, I wish I could do that, and I would say, so why aren't you? And so they'd say, well, you know, I'm kind of afraid, I, you know, if I, I'd have to be by myself, maybe it was a widow, whatever. Um, and I'd say, you know, you can do this. So when I think of change catalyst, I like to be the spark that whether I'm telling some stories that I've done or really more interesting to me is other women's stories of what they've done, overcoming fears and obstacles because they really wanted to do something. So I hope that these stories will spark um, some interest in some of the women and men, and women of all ages too, men of all ages, to do something they really are interested in doing. So that's, that's how I think of myself as helping to expedite that process. Well, when I was reading it and um, all the stories do, uh, there seems to be a common thread where you must be asking them about physical risk first, because you ask, there's a lot about uh, zip lining, skydiving, parasailing, which uh, was, it was a common thread where the women would say whether yes, they wanted to do that, yes, they had done that, or no, they would never do that in a million years. And one thing that made me think about was the visibility of women and girls, because when you're a young woman or a girl or a teenager, you're very visible out in the world, and the repercussions for that are catcalling, criticism, and a lack of general feeling of being safe when you're alone. 
then you get to be around 50 mm -hmm. and you become a woman becomes invisible it's like she's not even seen anymore because the attributes that made her prominent aren't as perky or pretty as they used to be so um, do you think that's still true for 50? Is 50 still the dividing line? Or I mean, I like to think that, you know, it's moved up. I'm 68, so I like to think now it's oh. 70 or something. But okay. what do you think about that? We're the same age, by the way. So um, what do I think about being 50 and how that might change? Definitely, some women have told me they have felt invisible. And I think in terms of physical presence, Women, it's true, we're not looked at like we were in our 20s, but can also be very um, freeing because maybe we don't need to be that worried about, you know, how we look and the peer pressure, although there still is some of that. For example, you have beautiful gray hair. Some women don't feel comfortable with gray hair, but, um, and I really like it. I think it's great. So... I think in terms of physical, a lot of people, when they think of risk-taking, they do think physical risk. And skydiving came up as the number one risk that people either wanted to take or no way were they going to do skydiving. But I was really interested in get a, getting a variety of risks that didn't necessarily um, have anything to do with taking a physical risk because there were some entrepreneurs in my book and some career changers. So they weren't, they weren't involved in, physical, uh, in the physical sense. So I was looking for a, a wide variety. Well, I think there was a, a definitely a wide variety. And I was particularly intrigued by all the travel. There were very few women, if maybe one or two out of all the ones who were in the book, who didn't just kind of burst out and travel on their own, travel with husbands, whatever. But travel mm -hmm. was a very big constant. Did that surprise you? It didn't actually, because I think when often, and it depends upon the age of retirement, but I think a lot of people, men and women, look forward to traveling if they hadn't had a chance to do that before because of work. Um, some of the women's stories are, you know, pretty close to home. I think about Pat, who ended up doing hospice work. Uh, she hasn't traveled that much, although she's interested in doing that at some point in her life. Um, yeah, it's, it really varied in terms of women traveling later, or perhaps they traveled earlier and wanted to continue traveling. So travel, yes, is a, is a very popular interest, especially, I think, as women get older and they realize they haven't seen some places they've read about and they want to go see them. I also thought another common uh, uh, strain through the stories were, and I enjoyed it, there was kind of a de-emphasis on children, husbands, and family life. You were able to bring out their own stories within just the, con the, the confines of themselves. So there were certainly children and husbands and grandchildren, but mm -hmm. I loved how you had the women focus really on themselves with you know, family life as more of a way background than being in the front. Not that there were some who had circumstances where they had to be caretakers, definitely, right. but 
you, you, maybe it was the way you wrote the survey that managed to get them to really hone in on themselves, which I thought was, was ex an excellent strain to run through the book. Oh, good, yes. Well, and it was about them. And um, the survey, actually, when I did it in the fifth, in, when I was 50, <clears throat> I didn't start writing this book until I was 61. And it took me five years to research and identify the kinds of risks I was looking for. So um, I think some women brought up the fact that, so it was two separate exercises. They weren't the same women. They were a totally different group of women, um, and who, most of whom I did not know. But I think a lot of women pointed out that they were empty nesters later in life, and they had to start thinking about, well, what am I doing? I've always, if they had children, and some of them did, some of them didn't. One of the women in the book uh, ended up fostering a brother and sister very young and ended up adopting them in her 50s as a single gay woman. And all the machinations she went through and asking herself whether she could do this at, at her age. So, um, but I think a lot of the women were saying, you know, this is time for me. I really need to think about what do I want to do? What's, in, what's important to me to do now? Because we're much more focused on, not to be, you know, morbid, but we are more sensitive to time is passing fast. And if we don't do something now, that's what I'm always saying. If somebody really wants to do something, do it. Try to figure out a way to make it happen so you don't regret it later. But I guess the first thing you have to do is identify truly what it is you want to do. And I think in the book, there are exercises. I found the end of the book with where you fill in the blanks and you use um, your questions so that you would self-question. Very helpful mm -hmm. for even, I feel like, you know, I have a path, I'm, there's not much that I want to do that I'm not doing except for COVID. But I thought um, some of the questions were real, would be helpful for anybody, actually at almost any stage of their lives, men and women, to say, okay, what could I be doing that I'm not doing? And what do, have I not even really thought of doing? I, I loved the back part of the book. I thought it was great. Oh, good, good. Some women have said they, they answered those questions uh, diligently. Others said they really didn't need to do that. But, you know, it, it was just a personal um, personal decision at which you gravitated toward. But good, I'm glad that you found the questions helpful and think others would as well. I did. So why don't yeah. we now, when uh, we spoke, I picked out one woman's story that, um, I, that I just loved. And uh, it didn't involve physical risk-taking. It involved more entrepreneurial risk-taking. And uh, it worked for a while, and then it didn't work. And one thing I admired about her is that she seemed to be able to step out past uh, the closing of the business that she had started and just keep going. You know, she wasn't dragged down. It, it was hard, but she wasn't destroyed by it. So can you tell us um, a little bit about her and then um, maybe a little bit of reading from her story, please? Sure, absolutely. And as Eileen just pointed out, yes, there were a few entrepreneurs in the book. And um, Denise is um, from Rhode Island, a small town in Rhode Island. And she grew up in a family. Uh, she had an older brother and a younger sister. Her mother was very ill with a congenital heart condition. And she ended up uh, dying when Denise was 13. 
And um, her father was a successful builder and contractor, but he was abusive. And by the way, initially when I interviewed her, I found out about her because friends of mine had gone to her cafe when they were on the bike trail with their dog and they discovered this. And they called me up and they said, you should contact this woman. She's fascinating how she started this hot dog cafe and dog biscuit bakery. <laughs> so what happened with Denise is she had a bunch of different short-term jobs after high school, married, had three children, and her husband ended up on disability. And that's when she became very interested in uh, workers' comp rights and advocacy. She ended up being an ED of a nonprofit, but money was tight. There were, there were um, five of them in the family, and she realized you know, this was gonna be tough. She ended up getting into the paralegal business and then she divorced her husband, had three little kids, and had to figure out a way to have more financial security, and she ended up in the insurance business. So she rose right up, obviously very successful, ended up in a very high-pressure job. Her blood pressure went sky high, and she was very, very nervous about this. By this time, she had remarried, and she didn't know what she was gonna do. And there was a little building for sale near her that was near a um, baseball field and a community center. And her grandson, who had she taken around the country um, to various baseball games and stadiums, said, why don't you have a hot dog um, cafe, Grandma? Why don't you name all the hot dogs after all the baseball stadiums? She says, oh, that's a great idea. Because here she is buying a building using her retirement funds, her 401k plans. So this was risky for her. Um, and she said, oh, that's a good idea, because she had no idea what she was gonna do. And then she liked dogs, so she said, maybe I could combine, make some you know, um, healthy biscuits for dogs. So she launched this business, not knowing what she was doing, but she had to rehab the building. She was very clever. I went down to see her one cold afternoon and she had these stools that she had made out of um, white cushions, and she stitched red stitching to make them look like baseballs. Baseballs, oh, that's cool. Yeah, she was all lined up, and she was so happy. Um, She's putting in long, long hours, but she said a different kind of stress. Her blood pressure took a nosedive right after she quit the insurance job. So. She uh, hired teenagers. Um, she had a lot of fun with it, even though she was working crazy hours, and um, told me how fun it was. And it was something so different. She never would have imagined her doing this. So then um, I've been staying in touch with the women. And before I went to press, I was following up with her, and I couldn't reach her. And so I checked the cafe and was horrified to discover the building was for sale. And it was oh. empty. And so I reached her and I said, Denise, Denise, what happened? And she said, oh, she said, I wasn't making a profit and it wasn't going to be, you know, sustainable. And I realized it was an extremely difficult position for me to decide to, to not have the business anymore. And she says, you might want to just pull my story from the book. Don't, you know, I can understand you don't want my story in there. I'm not a successful uh, woman. I've had to, I said, wait a minute, answer one question. Did you, did, were you glad when you think back now, were you happy that you started this business? And she said, absolutely. And I said, well, 
that's fantastic. You did something, you had no idea what you were doing. And she said, yeah, and I learned from it. I made a bunch of mistakes that I would do differently now. So um, yeah, so each woman that I interviewed, I asked what their thoughts and advice would be for others who want to take a risk similar to what they did. And should I go ahead and, and yes, read this please. section? I mean, okay. Quote, engaging in an action where you're unsure of the outcome is Denise's definition of risk. Coming from the insurance industry, Denise analyzes risks. I always thought of myself as more of a checkers player than a bungee jumper. I don't think I seek out risks. I did a risk analysis with this new business. I examined what I would lose and what I could fall back on. I asked myself, how secure is my insurance job? She witnessed layoffs and thinks no job is guaranteed and in large firms, older employees are expendable. I took a leap of faith, Denise said. Buying the building and starting a cafe and bakery was a great unknown. This was a pretty big risk for me. Coming from a healthy six-figure salary with benefits, I rated my 401k plans and was in a deficit income mode. I tried, I failed, and I moved forward. I'm at peace with it. I knew it was risky, and if I hadn't tried, I most certainly would have regretted it. For those who are thinking about taking a risk but are fearful, Denise recommends prayer. Without sounding preachy, she said, I believe God provides. He listens. I prayed. I didn't know what to do. Then I jumped in with my eyes wide shut. She further advises people contemplating starting a business to weigh your options carefully. You need to ask yourself, what's your failsafe? Your tolerance level for risk. I asked myself two questions. If I fail, will I regret it? And if I don't try it, will I regret it? Denise's mother died before she was 33. During my 32nd year, I was fearful about my life ending, she said. Because my mother died young, I instilled a sense of independence in my children to ensure they could do things for themselves, cooking, laundry, filing taxes, and so on. Denise's father and stepmother had their own businesses. Both died in their early 60s and never enjoyed retirement. Her aunt and uncle went to Miami, where her uncle slipped and fell. His fall led to a serious infection, his kidneys shut down, and he died within the year. He never got to retire and realize his dreams together with his wife. Denise has had friends die early who didn't do what they hoped they would in their later years. It doesn't matter how safe you think you are. Some things are not in your control. You never really know what will happen. Life is precious, Denise believes. Your life can be deceptively comfortable. There is no guarantee that the life we are living today will be here tomorrow. Despite a rough childhood, Denise chooses to be positive. Starting a cafe is the first time I took a risk for myself. In the past, I've taken risks with when someone else's survival was on the line. When younger, I went after my father to protect my sister, who was being hit by my dad. I was bold and took risks to stand up for others. As a single mom, I had to take care of my kids. My difficult experiences during my youth were part of who I am, but they don't define me. Alcohol, addiction, and abuse hurt and have a far-reaching impact. 
I was lucky enough to be able to separate from my father's actions and develop empathy for the man who turned to alcohol to cover up his inability to relate to his family or any human being in any meaningful way. I don't believe people wake up thinking they're going to hurt people. I believe in the inherent goodness of people. I like to be happy. And she concludes by saying, I have zero regrets about starting the cafe and bakery. I wanted to give it a shot and go for it. I'd rather die happy than die wishing I had done it. And that's Denise. That, um, that story just, I don't, I don't know what it was. Uh, there she is, wh whether it was the, my love of the idea, her grandson's idea of making um, different hot dogs and naming them after different teams or stadiums. I thought that was so cool. And then combining it with dog treats. But I found her attitude and her yeah. saying, I believe people are inherently good. That yes. was also another strain that uh, appeared in most of the women that you that were uh, in the book. And I don't know if that is a common strain throughout humanity. I think there are people who are more cynical than that. But I just wonder if that feeling that people are inherently good, so you, she didn't blame the failure of the business on other people. She you know, took the responsibility herself but um, I did you see that throughout all the people you spoke to, there just seemed to be kind of an underlying optimism that buoyed them all up, most of them? Yes. Yes, I think so. And I should point out, too, that when I talked with Denise initially, she had mentioned her father was abusive. But she said, please don't put that in the book. And then when I talked with her, and I happened to mention another woman in the book whose father had been terribly abusive, and um, I said, you know, that's in there. That was important because it was important to me that women saw their stories before I put them in print and they approved them. So I said, if you're not comfortable with my saying that, that's okay. And she said, you know what? Put that in there. He's gone. I feel like, you know, that was an important part of my history, my background, and I think it should be in there. You put that back in. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. But yes, um, Optimism. I mean, Rose Marie, who published her memoir at 81, and again, she came from an abusive mother family. Um, I think she just was determined. She was always positive. I said, how could you be so positive with such a horrific background? Marcella from Kenya grew up in poverty. Um, and then there's the sort of fun ones, a roller derby skater who's feisty, who broke her arm. She used to roller skate, but she was um, terrible at sports. So she broke her arm twice before she was 12. She said, I'm not skating anymore. So at age 35, she just went roller skating, you know, to these little winks, you know, where they played the music. And um, then at, at, um, when she was 65, her daughter took her to a roller derby game. And she said, wow, I could do that. But so she joined a team, but all these women were in their 20s, big women. She <laughs> Under, she's like miniature. She's barely five feet, tiny woman. And she always felt like, you know, well, you know, I think I can do this. But she had the support of the other women, all much younger than she was. She's now 74. And all of her games were canceled. But, you know, I think 
in her case too, she felt like everyone was um, encouraging her, even though she was in her 70s, you know, playing roller derby. I mean, in games, official games. She was an official player, one of the oldest in the world. I think yeah. that, um, and we're running out of time, so I, I have to say the, also the spirit of I can do that mm -hmm. uh, is also another theme of the book. And I think um, you, it was wonderful of you to be able to gather these stories, and it must have been so much fun to do, but quickly, was there anyone whose story you couldn't publish because it didn't kind of fit the mold of the book? Well, interesting. Um, I was interested in finding a woman who had donated her kidney after age 50, but it had to be to a stranger. Now, that's less than 1% of donations of kidneys. So I thought, how am I going to find these women? So I went on a website, Living Kidney Donors Network, and the founder and um, director posted my notice. So five women responded, but I had, and I interviewed all five at length, but three of them I had to um, disqualify because they had given to someone they knew. Ah. And I ended up with Kim, and then I ended up with Lita, who also donated her kidney, but also um, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and how she's feisty and she's fighting it. But no, um, I was actually really sad that I couldn't find, and this might be another book, um, I wanted a Native American woman, a leader um, in the book. And there were some issues with this one woman. I was trying to get her story, but there was a death in the family in the circle, so that didn't happen. But no, I didn't. I did. Oh, there was one very wealthy woman that I disqualified. I thought, no, nope, I want I want mostly middle class, and some women were very poor. I didn't want a lot of. She started an art gallery, and it was interesting because she hadn't had an art background. But I didn't want to include her. So well, well I don't really feel like she was missed in the book. But um, yeah. now we're going to have to say goodbye, sadly enough. But um, I'm going to highly recommend your book. Absolutely uh, inspirational. Yeah. Yes, and we'll have had it up on screen, so we'll, we'll see the book. Um, and to thank you for writing it. It's very encouraging. It wasn't preachy. Um, there's some interesting exercises in the back. So um, I think uh, anyone who picks up the book will be encouraged to uh, take maybe a side road or a side path or even a dream of a, a bakery for dogs or hot dogs of all the major league baseball parks. But I want to thank you for pulling all these together and putting it into a very readable and enjoyable book. Diana, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Eileen. I appreciate it. My website, too, is womengoingforit.com. Okay, we'll put, we'll put that up. And okay. um, Bookstew viewers, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And um, I'll have some information about Diana and her book. And I hope you challenge yourself going forward, because why the hell not? Have a good night.